0: for a king except for our heart singing out We're starting this morning a series uh, as we prepare for uh, coming Christmas. It's Christmas season. This is a series of Sundays that are called Advent, uh, and there are four themes that take us through Advent: hope, peace, love, and joy. Hope, peace, love, and joy. And each week we'll be exploring each one, and 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 diving in. Uh, to, to look at each theme and it, with the understanding of what does the word advent mean? It means the arrival. It means the coming. It's, it's literally the breaking in, the breaking in of the kingdom of God into this world. It, it's, it's what we just saw on that, on that little bumper. They were waiting, they were expecting, they were looking for their king, but what they found was their hope what they found, what, what confronted them was, was, the, was the reality of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That, that, that reality that, that, that takes everything that we confront in this world and everything we hope and desire that it should be infuses them in one and fulfills them in the person of Jesus. And everything about his life when he came that first time, well, it was described for thousands of years in the scriptures. Everything that was promised was found in him. And then he, 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 he died. It was, it was taken. It was that moment of despair, which actually was a moment of victory, followed by resurrection, followed by an ascension, in which we are now eagerly awaiting, in which he sent his spirit. So, so Advent is a time in which we were commemorate. We remember what he did, breaking in over and over, culminating in Christ. But we also are, are looking forward, we're preparing for the final consummation of that. If he came the first time, he will come again. If he came the first time, he will come again. If there's ever a time which we need a message of hope, it's right now. How many believe that? What's fascinating about the time that we live in is that this time, and we'll, we'll look at this some more in a minute. as a quote I'm going to read. But this time that we live in is actually a time in which everything the world has promised has been given to us. We live in unprecedented times of peace. We live in unprecedented times of prosperity. Literally, I mean, if you, if you, if you look at the statistics worldwide, poverty has been lifted up over the entire world, multiple levels. There has never been a time in this world where the average person has lived as prosperous as we live right now. Somebody just did recently, I read, somebody did a comparison comparing John D. Rockefeller at 1900s. So would you rather live the lavish life that he lived at the turn of the 20th century than the average life of a middle-class person in America in the 21st? And when you, at first, immediately go, well, I'd rather be Rockefeller then, right? I mean, my goodness, you know, one of the richest men in the world and everything, and then when you go down and you compare all of the conveniences of life, all the things that we have at our fingertips, the way that we live, all of a sudden you go, well, can I like, be Rockefeller and live now? And we don't see it. We don't understand it. We don't know it. See, why? Where's the Disconnect see, we came through, if you, if you, if you, when you go back and you look at history and these movements through history and, 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 and the promises of history, on which is overlaid the gospel. You see, you have worldly hope and biblical hope, and we're going to talk about the difference of those in a minute, the difference between them. But worldly hope is what? It's come to this place where it has pinned its hope on everything that is only in this world, what is material, what is rational, what I can reason with my mind. And it's led to untold suffering. There's a, um, there's a video I was watching recently, it's a podcast. It's interesting enough, the, the, the title of it is called The Four Horsemen of Meaning. The Four Horsemen of Meaning. Now what was interesting to me is like, I don't know how many people would see that title and recognize that that's immediately a biblical motif the horse horseman that's a, a motif from scripture but anyway it what it was is it's two psychologists two uh, secular psychologists and two christian thinkers who were having this conversation it's about two two and a half hours long i recommend watching it if you get past all the technical conversation they really get down and boil to boil it down to things that we're facing in this life and uh There was one particular uh, 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 individual psychologist. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. His name is uh, John Verveke. And and he he says this uh, uh, about the society in which we live in, about the culture in which we live in, about the way we've come to think. There is a a way in which we have come to think that, that says that if I can't prove it with science, it's not real. That, it, that if I can't boil it down to the principles of, of biology and chemistry and physics, then, then I should throw it away. It doesn't, it doesn't have uh, um, uh, uh, truth to it. And he said this, this is, and this is, a, this is a, a, a secular psychologist in all of his research and all of his studying. This is what he said. He said, I mean, I represent a lot of people who are feeling called to the fact that the very ways we think is causing massive suffering. What, and, and, he, and he goes on, he was talking about there's like this black hole, and this black hole is like sucking into it uh, meaning and life and all of these things. And he says this, but, but what, was, what was directly referring to as the black hole is that science exists, right? We all know that. And listen, this is not a put down on science. How many are glad for the advances of science? I mean, my goodness, the amount of, of, of improvement, of flourishing that we've been able to bring because of science. The amount of order, the amount of chaos we've been able to, to, uh, to remove and replace with order. Because that, that is a, a picture of our very callings as human beings in God. That's what, uh, what it means to be living out the life of God in so many ways, in so many facets. But when you strip it from and devoid it from God, you get what's called scientism. Scientism. And this is what he was talking about. He says this, okay, so science exists. Okay, if it is then, what kind of entity is it? And tell me, using physics or chemistry or even biology, and, and use just that ontology, that methodology, tell me what science is. And tell me how it has the status to make the claims it does. And tell me how science is related to meaning and truth. And how do meaning and truth fit into the scientific worldview? Meaning and truth are presupposed by the scientific worldview, but they have no proper place within it. So whenever we're doing science and and saying, "What what is this world or what the world is? We're absenting ourselves from it. We're we're not including ourselves. In other words, when we're doing science and and figuring these things out and saying this gives us all the answer, we, we forget the fact that we're on the outside doing it. We're on the outside projecting meaning and truth to it. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? How is that possible? Now, why am I talking about this? Because he goes on and he says this We have no home in which we are properly situated. And I think the ra- that ramifies through everything we think, say, and do to each other. We have no proper home. And as a result, it affects everything that we say, think, and do to one another. And with each other, in a profoundly corrosive way, it causes enormous suffering. It causes enormous suffering. So I was talking to somebody, this is him going on. I was talking to somebody just the other day. Catch this right now. There are literally more deaths by suicide in Australia than COVID. Australia is one of the epitomes of the best countries in the world. An affluent liberal democracy, not much conflict. It's been at peace for a long time. All of the things that the enlightenment said would bring unending happiness and we're spiking in suicide. You have a loneliness epidemic. You have an addiction epidemic. You have people choosing to learn to live in a virtual world rather than a real world. People would rather live in a virtual world than the real world. You have all of these things that are pointing to the fact that there is a significant stressor. And, and you have positive responses as well. In other words, you not only have people uh, trying to, uh, to hide or, or cover what's meaningless, you have what? You have the mindfulness revolution. You have the resuscitation of ancient wisdom philosophies. You have the work of people like right here, and he's talking about the four of them and what they're talking about. And, and he mentions one of them there. His name was Jonathan Pajot, and he says he's, his work and he says, he says he's responding to this suffering and meaning crisis and he says we were drawn to one another it's john talking about it. jonathan we were drawn to one another because we saw the zombie as a mythical representation the culture was saying to itself we're suffering a meaning crisis anybody ever watch any of the zombie movies anybody willing to admit they watch the zombie movies because i know y'all And and these guys, these thinkers are looking about, why are they so popular? Why are we drawn so much to them? Because what is a zombie? A zombie is a human devoid of meaning. Sucking and eating life. And what are those movies about? Fighting that as a crisis. Trying to find life. Do we have a need for hope in our culture? Anybody think? So let's talk about what hope is. What is hope? There's two dimensions to hope, biblically speaking. There's two dimensions. There's a future dimension, and there's a present dimension. This biblical hope Something that makes biblical hope different than worldly hope. Let's contrast the two for a minute. Biblical hope is evidence based. What does that mean? It's based on God's past redemptive acts. What has God done in the past? How has he acted? How can we go back? Now catch this. This is what's different than worldly hope. Biblical hope looks at what has God actually done in the real world. Making a promise to Abraham and taking dead wombs and bringing a child out of it. Taking that child and creating an entire nation. Taking a a people group who are subjugated as slaves and delivering them out into a nation that stands on their own with powerful miracles. It is God erupting into the world and bringing change over and over. Redemption. Redemption. Keeping his word. Keeping his promises. And it gets even more so because that nation does what over and over. This is the story we're given. That nation fails. That nation falls. That nation turns its back. That nation is a microcosm of the world itself. The picture we have in Israel is a picture of the world itself. And at its lowest point when it is subjugated by a foreign power who are led by pagan gods who want, who want nothing but to subjugate that nation, the people are living in hope that God will bring their king. And into that, Christ is born. But it's a real event in real space-time, like our lives today. This is why you've heard me say this, and I, and I speak to this over and over. Guys, we're as much as a part of the story of the Bible as all the characters we read about. Because the future of the Bible is not yet. it's our future. It's easy for us to look in the book and look at their lives and go, wow, this one had great faith, this one didn't, and, and make judgments on them and not realize they know nothing more about the future than we do now, other than what God has said. And so the Bible is there to encourage us not to, 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 to hold on to the person and character of God himself, not the circumstances that we see. That is the kind of hope that needs to be brought into this world. Hope is a confidence. It's trusting the, that the individual will experience the fullness of God's goodness now and in the future. See, worldly hope is very different. We as humans, how many are aware of this? That we as humans are by nature hopeful creatures. I mean, you can, you can look the studies up. If you, look, if you take hope away from someone, they'll die. We need hope. But, but hope, for, for, uh, for outside of the scripture, is subjective. It's subjective. It's based on our experiences. If I experience this over and over again, I can expect this. If I experience this over and over again, I, can, I see this, I see that, and I decide what hope do I want, and I pin my hope on those subjective experiences. They're all based on me as the center of reference. When it goes bad, I'm down. When it goes well, I'm up. When I see potential, I can get myself up to go past the bad. This is all a subjective experience. Biblical hope is not. It is objective. Biblical hope avoids this subjectivity by being founded on something that provides, that provides a sufficient basis for confidence in its fulfillment. God and his redemptive acts as they culminate in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, hope is trust and confidence. It's, it's expecting what is sure to come. See, faith says, I know God's going to keep his word. Hope is expecting it to happen. Anybody see the difference? They're related. We're going to look at this some more. So hope is what? It's active. It's faith-filled. It's waiting for God to fulfill what he inaugurated by the power of his spirit. Listen. You see, this is what's unique and different about the gospel. What's unique and different about the gospel is is that Jesus isn't simply a proposition we come to believe in. It, 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 it's not simply, the, the gospel is not simply this message that, that Jesus is true, that he lived, he died, he buried, he resurrected. He re, uh, uh, He was buried. He resurrected. He's coming again. It's not just that message and us believing that message; it's this point in which I interact with the message, with the word of truth, and then He reciprocates by giving us His Spirit. There is there is very much an experiential component to it. We become changed. Now, we're not pinning our hopes on an experience. We pin our hope on Christ. But what I'm saying is that if it's a real relationship, then guess what? It's a real relationship. It's why, uh, and many of you heard me tell this story so many times, um, but it, it, it answers this question. It's why I spent three months with a coworker who kept asking me question after question after question, trying to put truth after truth after truth to me. And, and we talked about them over and over and over. And it wasn't until I finally said, Listen, because I've answered all the questions. All the questions can be answered up here. And they don't have to all be answered up here, but they can be. They can all be answered up here. And it wasn't until the time I said, Do you really want to know? He goes, yeah, I really want to know. I said, it's not up to me to reveal him. If you want to know, he will reveal himself. Oh, we can get down on the floor right here, kneel down, you ask, and if you really want to know, he will reveal himself. Okay, and that's what we did. And when we stood up, Heaven didn't open up. There was no lightning. There was no experience. And I actually didn't see the guy for three months. The boss put us on different jobs after that. Three months later, he came back and he's real. He's real. I have met him. I know him. You see, hope pins the fact that God has come and entered into this world in real time, in real experience. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father now, ascended, but has not left us here. He has deposited his spirit in here and all that he has said will come to pass and we can know that by the deposit of his spirit. Does that make sense? In, In Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. And he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So Joseph is one of the members of the Sanhedrin. And, and as a member of the Sanhedrin, um, uh, he, he saw them declare uh, Jesus guilty. He saw Jesus crucified. Now, what does it say? It says he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. That meant he knew the kingdom of God was coming. He wasn't just, it wasn't just something that he had mentally had in his mind. He was eagerly expecting and and waiting for it. As a result of that, this one in whom all had hope died on the cross in spite of the hope being squashed. He says, I'm going to go ask for the body and bury it. What does that mean? What does that tell you? Think about this for a minute. His hope wasn't in the circumstances around him. If his hope was in the circumstances around him, he'd have been like the rest of the disciples that said, You know, why bother? His hope hope was in the God who's greater than the circumstances. Jesus has been crucified. The Messiah we've been following for three years. He's dead. He's dead. And yet, he didn't place his hope in that. What he saw. He honored him anyway. He took the next step in honoring God, no matter what the circumstances were. No matter what he saw with his eyes, he took the next step. Why? That's what hope does. You see, hope isn't an emotion that, that causes us to walk around all the time and go, yippee. Now, some people are like that. Some people are like that. And I thank God for those people. I'm not one of them. Sometimes I don't actually thank God for those people. But anyway, that's not what hope is. Hope says, I'm going to do it in spite of. That's what the world needs to see. Hope led Joseph to action. Hope means actively waiting for the kingdom of God. Actively waiting. Not just, hey, God said, Jesus, coming one day. I'll just kind of do my thing and wait for it to happen. Not that kind of waiting. Think of waiting this way. Uh, What what did we, uh, we used to call servers in in our restaurants? Waiters or waitresses, right? Okay, what, what did a good waiter or waitress do? They were actively looking at you the whole time. And then you go to the, the really fancy restaurants, right? They would anticipate. They'd see your glass. When you finished the last drop, they were filling it up. They see that you were done with this. They were bringing it out. They were scraping crumbs. They were anticipating. They were waiting on you. That's actively waiting. That's hope. All right, Romans 8, 4 says this, in hope we believe against hope. He believed against hope, and he's talking about Abraham. Paul is writing about Abraham here, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. When he, when, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Listen, Abraham and Sarah have been trying to have children their entire lives. He's 100. She's 85. What are the chances? What are the chances? Uh, The Holy Spirit told you what? Uh, Abraham, uh, I didn't know those kind of weeds grew in the desert. No, unbelief made him waver. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced God was able to do what what he had promised. You see, hope is not faith. Hope grows out of faith. Because I trust that God will keep his word, I'm looking forward to it to happen. Because I trust God will keep his word, I'm looking forward to it to happen. How many of us trust God will keep his word? Now, how many of us are actually looking forward to it happening? That's hope. You see, that is what infuses us. That is what gives meaning and purpose to our lives. Why do I mean that gives meaning and purpose? Because when we hit the struggles of life, when things get difficult and when they get, not if they get hard, not if we get struggles, when they occur, what is the anchor? What is the rock? What is that point from which you're going to say, this doesn't matter, this is what matters. This rock I'm standing on what matters, not what's in front of me. That's hope. While faith takes God at His word, believing that He will do as He promises, hope is the anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. Romans 15 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. You notice what that's saying there. Hope originates in the character and nature of God Himself. Hope comes from may the God of hope. Hope comes from the character and nature of God. Just like God is love, and love comes forward from His character and nature, He is the God of hope. He, He, it's see, it's we're not hoping that God will keep His word. We're hoping in God, who keeps His word. Do you see the difference? Let me say that again. We're not hoping that God will keep his word. We're hoping in the God who keeps his word. Our hope is in the person and character and nature of God, not what he's going to do. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because when a circumstance comes along and I want the answer to be this way, how many know I can look up a scripture to find that that answer should be this way? Oh, am I the only one that can do that? (laughs) I mean every single one of us here can find a scripture to say, "This is where the circumstance should be." So God, your word says, so I'm going to stand on this. And my hope is now in what was said, not who said it. I mean, you know, sometimes He's the God that gets us through a storm, and sometimes he's the God who calms the storm. I don't know what he's going to do. I know he's going to do. Do you see the difference? May the God of hope who fill you all joy and peace and believe me so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I love that second part. I love that second part. That second part is by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is that telling me? It's because all the times I feel like I have no hope, the Holy Spirit's knocking on the door. Knocking on the door, saying, trust me. He's not left me alone. He's not left me abandoned. The Ephesians one eight, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So, do you hear what he just said? He said part of understanding hope is that our eyes have to, be, our hearts, the eyes of our heart has to be enlightened. Do you catch the language there? Do you catch the language? He's not saying the eyes of your mind have to be enlightened. He's saying the eyes of your heart has to be enlightened. He's speaking to the exact thing these psychologists and thinkers were talking about that I was quoting earlier. He's speaking directly to it. He's saying, the, the, the psychologist going on, he says, there's actually four ways we've come down academically to understand that we know things. And propositional truth, this truth that we get up here in the reason, is only one of those four things. And what we have discovered, there's actually a part of us that has a memory For each one of those four areas. Only one of them is propositional truth. Well, I love the fact that we're spending millions of dollars in research to catch up to the Bible. But anyway, that's kind of a cheap shot. What's happening here is he's saying, May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. C.S. Lewis talks about this. So many writers, so many thinkers, there's this point at which I, don't, I, I may not be able to fathom all the mysteries and get it all down, but there's something knocking on my heart. There is eternity in my heart that's calling out and drawing out to me. There's something more here that I can't quite put my finger on. And it's when I tap into that, it's when I, I have exhausted myself in asking the questions and I finally say, show me who you are. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. And it's at that point, that point, it says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Do you catch that? Anybody here wonder what their calling is? (laughs) He just told you. You're called to hope. What's the one thing the world needs? Hope. Hope. Guess who's called to bring it? We read last week, you're the light, right? Jesus said, you're the light. Well, what's that light shining? Hope. Hope is your calling. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You see, There's an inheritance that's future. That's future. So not only do we receive that spirit in which we commune with him now, that spirit speaks to us about all that will be fulfilled when he comes. So what are we eagerly anticipating? So I'm just going to, for the sake of time this morning, I'm I'm not going to go through all of the detailed scriptures and all this. I have them. If anybody wants to notes, ask me for them. I'm just going to hit the highlights. What are we eagerly anticipating? What is it that we are, what is the glorious inheritance of the saints? What is that hope? It's this, number one, Titus 1.2, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. What's that? Eternal life. When you look at all of the death that is around us constantly in this world, what is the hope? Hope is eternal life. That's number one. Number two, uh, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, this is Paul on trial before the Sanhedrin, one part were Sadducees, the other part were Pharisees. He cried out in the councils, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on on trial. So it's not just a nebulous eternal life. It's not just a spiritual eternal life out there somewhere in the ether. It's an actual physical resurrection. It's a return of all that is right to earth. A resurrection from the dead. In, in Romans 8, he says what? And we sang this this morning. That there is a hope that we will be adopted as sons. That we, there is a hope. If there is one thing that is destroyed in this world more than anything else, it's the sense of family. If I want to destroy a sense of God and understanding the kingdom of God, the first thing I destroy is family. I tear it apart. I tear the roles apart. I, I, I destroy that. Why? Because what our hope is pinned on is understanding that we will be adopted as sons of God, which then means the redemption of our bodies. I don't know about you. My body's longing for a little bit of redemption. No? Check your medical bills out. Anyway, I just go over there. I probably shouldn't have said that. What's next? For, the, for Galatians 5.5, 5, my hope is for righteousness. We are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. What does that mean? Our hope is that he will make all things right. Anybody have a longing for justice? For making of all things right. We all have a longing of justice, except when it comes to us, we want mercy, right? I'll take some mercy, God, but bring justice in this world. What he does is make it all right. Uh, what's next? We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our glo- uh, glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is coming the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus the King. And finally, what we're looking forward to is to be in his presence. Paul says, I would, I would, it's far better to be absent from the body and to be present with him. What we're longing for, our greatest longing and hope, is that presence of him, that final, actual, physical presence. That's all of the f- future hope. But where am I now? So, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with all the full courage, is always, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul says his hope is to honor Jesus now, no matter what comes, life or death, whether by life or whether by death, may I honor Jesus. You see, he goes from looking at this future hope to this hope that's being in the present in acts i 'm going to 'll say this in acts what 's going on there 's this scene in the book of acts it 's in chapter one it 's in verse eleven and, and it says this it says men of galilee it's, it, what happened is, is is Jesus died on the cross, he rose three days later for forty days he physically appeared to them, ate meals with them, talked to them, taught them, and then forty days. Later, he takes him up to the t- top of Mount Olive, and he's standing there on Mount Olive while he's talking to him, has his final conversation, and they actually see him physically, bodily, not spiritually. It wasn't a vision. They see him lifted up and carried up into the heavens, and they're standing there like this. And then two angels appear. By the way, check this out. Trust me, I want you to prove me wrong. Look this in your Bible. Anywhere a time an angel appears in the Bible, an angel appears as a man, doesn't have wings. Angels never have wings. They always appear as a man and don't come with wings. And this is why the Bible says you need to be hospitable because you never know if you're entertaining an angel. Trust me, if a being showed up that had wings and was glowing, I would know it was an angel. All right, so there's two men show up and they're talking to Jesus. I mean, talking to the disciples. says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go our hope of his return is grounded on real eyewitnesses of events in history. Our hope of his return is grounded on real eyewitnesses in real time and space. Not a myth, not a story sometime, not a well-wishing. Our hope is demonstrated what, what is demonstrating is this coming together, this fusing as one. You have both the natural world, the physical world, the material world in which we live fused with Jesus. Jesus is our hope. It started with his birth, the incarnation, him coming from the Spirit, bringing, taking on the physical flesh of humanity. He lived this life in which heaven continued to break into earth. People were getting healed. Dead were raised, blind were seeing. Forgiveness was happening. Uh, the word of God was being preached. Truth was coming through starkly and, and exactly, and it was brought to his death, in which he t- takes on literally all of the evil of the world with a heart of love for the world. The, the, the all that the world could throw at him, and he comes forth in resurrection once again. The spirit and the physical fusing as one. He's ascended into heaven. The physical and the spirit fused as one, and he sends. the Holy Spirit if you are a believer you are the physical and the spiritual fused as one our hope is not in a story of something we wish will happen sometime in the future our hope is in the reality and the person of Jesus Christ that reality needs to be lived out so that the world can see it In the same way it was lived out in Israel. In the same way that Jesus lived it out. In the same way the apostles lived it out. Just as it was said of David. That he fulfilled the purposes of God in his generation. We are called to do the same thing. This world needs hope. It's dying. There are more people committing suicide than dying of COVID in Australia. In a time of unprecedented prosperity It's because one thing is missing and that's hope and you have it you have it you have it if you have Christ <laughs>